Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension, so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined today by Terry Robinson. We're going to be giving you another episode of Tomes of Magic, and this time we are talking about revised rule book. This is the uh, core book that started off revised edition for Mage in 2000. And before I get us started, I'm going to see if we have any announcements. Terry, how are we doing there? I am doing swell. So I am currently preparing for my next professional exam, which means I have given myself a large project that has absolutely nothing to do with professional advancement to do to distract myself from doing the thing that is necessary. It's like taking up model shipbuilding to ignore your children or something like that. (laughs) So a SRD is a system resource document, and it just tells you the rules of a game. It doesn't give you any setting, any lore, any of the stuff you actually need necessarily to play the game. It just answers rules questions as they come up. I have decided to try and come up with one for Mage, and I'm whatever number I say, like I'm 30% done, I know I am wrong. I am going to say that I am a third of the way through. I only have two sections left to do, and that is combat and magic. And what portion of the rules could just be combat and magic? Oh, that's got to be. Exactly. 10% maybe. Yeah. But anyway, (laughs) that has been an absolutely fascinating process. And thank you to everyone in the Discord that when I come up with a weird rules question at 2 a.m. on a Tuesday, invariably somebody quickly answers. It is just intended as a community tool. And it's part of the four-part process that we are doing at Mage the Podcast to try and make this game a little bit easier to approach. Make the rules easier to reference for storytellers, make the rules easier to understand and the setting easier to understand for players, have some sort of my first chronicle and have some sort of other set of assistive materials. So that's that's one leg of our four-legged stool of maging gooder. And that's all I have to say. One leg of the four-legged race, which uh, is actually rather rather simple. It's a three-legged race that trips people up. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> okay, well, in this episode of uh, Tomes of Magic, we're talking about the revised edition core rule book. This clocked in at 306 pages. It came out uh, in the year 2000. This had a, a, a lot of people credited as authors. It also had a lot of people credited as contributors, which... Uh, To be honest, makes me wonder, what's the difference between an author and a contributor? So I once asked one of the Onyx Path people what the difference was between, because in M20, we have writer, and then we have a section that has, like, additional writing by. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm like, what's the difference there? And the person replied with, ah, we explained that on the podcast. I'm like, well, can you tell me right here, right now, because I'm standing in front of you? And the reply was, I don't remember. So... (laughs) (laughs) So don't feel bad for not being quite sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. That actually makes me feel a lot better. (laughs) Well, uh, to start off with, I wanted to uh, preface this episode with uh, some brief notes on where White Wolf Game Studio was as a company in uh, 1999, uh, the year before they came out with Mage Revised. I was very active uh, as a Mage fan and an online Mage fan uh, through 99 and 2000. And so I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say I was at ground zero when all these changes were announced, when they actually came, when the reactions were noted by fans. I'm very glad that Terry is here because Terry's very active online uh, nowadays, and I'm not as active online nowadays because I, I have these children. They keep 
needing things. It's it's weird. But yeah. but anyways, I don't have a very good uh, sense of how Mage fans these days are are thinking about and uh, revised and and using it in their chronicles. To lay it out briefly, um, in the early '90s, especially the mid '90s, uh, White Wolf was riding high. Uh, their games were selling very well. They were hiring new staff. Uh, they were getting very good uh, reviews from the critics. Some people were calling them the number two role-playing game company and you know number one of course was the people putting out Dungeons and Dragons which then as now was considered by everyone to be the number one tabletop role-playing game. Now when it came to 1999 the situation had changed in just a few years. Sales were down, White Wolf was letting some of its employees go, hiring less uh, freelance writers, Uh, there were even some employees at White Wolf that were saying I think it's time to, to move to something else and they were a number of people were quitting their jobs and moving on. And so because of this, the corporate leadership of White Wolf Games at that time was very, very concerned. They said, look, uh, when it comes to putting out revised editions for our five big games, uh, Wraith, Changeling, Werewolf, Vampire, Mage, we've got to make some very big changes here. Vampire is the number one seller of our bunch. So, of course, that gets that got a revised edition first. Werewolf was selling quite well. That got a revised edition. Wraith was not selling as well as the other games. And so it was capped uh, around 1999-2000. They just said no revised edition and no more Wraith books for a, a good long while. Uh, Changeling, it had good enough sales to put out some more second edition Changeling books, but they did not put out a revised edition for Changeling the Dreaming. When it came to Mage, I guess it was, um, my guess is it was like on the fence. And so the corporate leadership said, okay, we're going to put out a Mage revised edition, but we are going to make some uh, changes here to the, the setting that we think will help it sell better. And whether or not it really did help is is a matter of much discussion. I, but they came to the person who was the line developer for Mage the Ascension in 99, who was uh, Satiros Phil Bricado. And they said to him, look, um, we know that you've had creative freedom up to this point and you've done a great job, but we are going to put these changes into... Um, the next edition of Mage. And uh, Bracana said, well, I, I've, I've had creative freedom up to this point, and this is how we've always done it. Things are going well. I've got ideas for what I want to do, and I'm not on board with this decision. And uh, corporate leadership said, well, we're going to do this anyways, and that's just how it is. And uh, at the time, uh, Bracato said, um, okay, I'm, I'm making a career choice. I'm going to move on to other opportunities. And uh, he said, Ricardo has said in later interviews that he was uh, he was exhausted, he was he was overworked, and he really needed um, a career change that would give him a little more work life balance. And I'm I'm certain that's true. Ricardo had a lot of writing credits on uh, Mage: The Ascension Second Edition. Plus, he was contributing books to Werewolf and Changeling, um, and maybe even Vampire. So the man was very busy indeed. He decided to move on. He did not like how things were going. And he got his uh, friend and coworker Jesse Heinig, and he said, uh, look, they need a new mage developer, and uh, I, I want to prepare you for the job. Now, I'm giving all this introduction because at the time this happened, all of us mage fans online were told there's going to be a new developer. The name is Jesse Heinig, and that's all we were told. And so Mage fans were all discussing, well, who's Jesse Heinig? I've never heard of this guy. What makes people think he's going to be a good Mage developer? I mean, why can't we just hold on to Brucato? He's done all this great work. And behind the scenes, what was not announced online was Brucato and Heinig were friends. Brucato was preparing Heinig to take on the role. 
And so Heinig was uh, in a very good position to become the new Mage developer. But at the time, Mage fans just did not know this. So there were even a few online uh, chat sessions run by White Wolf to introduce the new guy. And all these fans were coming on. It's like, well, who are you? And then what are you doing here? So, I mean, the transition perhaps could have been handled better. But then I wasn't working at White Wolf at the time. So I'm not the right person to tell him how to do things. It was very interesting. So... Heinig had a number of things handed to him as you must do this with Mage Revised. And then there were other changes that Heinig himself wanted to make with Mage Revised. And as developer, he was the right guy to make those decisions. And so suffice it to say, Mage Revised had a lot of changes. There were a lot of changes in the rules. There were a lot of changes in the setting. There was changes with how Metaplot was handled. Just a lot of differences uh, happened. And there were Definitely reasons for that. So uh, before we move on to discuss uh, layout and art and organization of the book, uh, anything to add, Terry? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I was a reader at the time. My entire exposure to Revised was I had no concept of additions when I was in middle school, high school, and I was buying these books. But at one point, I got the Revised core rulebook, or I saw a preview online for Revised, which showed this very matrixy kind of dystopian interaction between a virtual adept and some group of technocrats. And I'm like, oh, everything's broken now and things suck. So I'm like, I'm not going to get revised, not realizing that like the books that came out after revised were informed by revised. So I got things like the infinite tapestry or the bitter road or dead magic. And I'm like, wow, this is way better than that stupid revised and not realizing it was part of the same edition, which kind of was the precursor to be realizing that edition wars to some extent are stupid, but also fully understandable. That was basically my experience of revised until I tried to become more active. And I stumbled into a few people who are, who were arguing about editions. And I guess my key takeaway was people who spend all their time arguing about additions are probably not actually playing the game and thus can be ignored. <laughs> and I think my favorite example of that was someone saying, oh, revised is way better than second edition. And I'm like, oh, so you play second edition. He's like, no, here's my 60 page homebrew. And I'm like, then what do you care? Like <laughs> you're not using any edition. <laughs> Yeah, I I remember uh, at the time there were were a lot of online fans saying, it's Brocato or nobody. If Brocato's not the developer, it's not really Mage, and and we're not on board with this. And I I was one of the people who was was posting in forums going, uh, yeah, we love Brocato's work. Other people can bring a fresh perspective to the game. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Let's see what Heineck has to say. Because at that time, Revised Core had not come out yet. But uh, anyways, uh, when it comes to layout, art, and organization of the book, um, I had a, a few notes. One thing that... I gotta say, blew me away was the prologue fiction. For me, that's saying something because I actually liked the prologue fiction for first edition because it was this really, really action-packed, uh, pulp-inspired story, and I liked that kind of stuff. And so I read the in, the prologue fiction for first edition. It's like, hey, this this sounds cool. I like this. And we get to second edition, the prologue fiction. There was lots and lots of references to things going on in the world of Mage, um, talking about oh, the Nefandi are attacking these uh, chantries that are out in the horizon. And there's stuff going on around Pluto's orbit and stuff like that. And and people who are Mage fans already, when they picked up second edition core book, like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. Let's follow this prologue fiction. But people who are totally new to Mage, they pick up the second edition core book and say, now I'm going to learn about Mage for the first time. And they read this prologue fiction. They're like, oh, my gosh, they're talking about a whole lot of stuff that I do not know anything about. What did I uh, get into here? 
And now I come to revised edition prologue, and and it's this mage taking a guy who's just awakened and saying, "Hey, look, let me tell you about what mages are. Let me tell you about what's going on in the world and the conspiracies and what's going." And I'm like, "Oh my gosh, this is appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, this totally works. It is introductory <laughs> fiction in that it is both fictional and introduces you to the game. Thus, it meets the technical requirements of being introductory fiction. And for that, yeah, it's, it's like for the first time, it's like, oh my gosh, hey, there's an idea. <laughs> I really did think this was the first time, the third time, by the way, that we get prologue fiction that totally fits, serves its purpose, and is easy to understand for a newbie. So I thought that was great. This time they took the write-ups on the traditions and they put it into chapter two. They just said, hey, look, let, let's introduce these factions of mages right up front. And instead of two pages strictly, we're going to give you three or four pages and, and spend some more time talking about them. And that was great. The first two editions of Mage had, for each faction write-up, they had a sort of template image by John, artist Joshua Gabriel Timbrook, who did a lot of concept art in the, in the early days for World of Darkness games. And so each image was not supposed to be one mage taken out of this tradition. It was supposed to be a very, very iconic, typical image you would expect to see of someone who toes the party line for this faction. Now, with Revised Edition, they had new template images for each tradition, and they didn't seem as iconic to me or as representative. When I looked at these images, I didn't get the sense that I'm seeing a visual representation of the totally stereotypical member of this group. For Revised Edition, um, these template images, they looked like just some person you know, that they plucked out of a crowd and said, okay, we'll use this person. So it's good art. I'm not saying anything against the artist. It's just, it didn't seem iconic to me when I looked at these pictures. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because in first edition and second edition, we had Michael Kaluta who did the 10 image set, which became the covers of the traditions books. That was kind of how we got one set of iconic images. And then, as you said, Joshua Gabriel, Tim Brooke did, the set that was in the book. Here, Leif Jones did all of the iconic images, and each chapter opening is an image that will eventually be used as the cover for the traditions books. And those were all done by Christopher Shy, who has a distinctive visual appeal, but to me, everything Christopher Shy does kind of looks the same. It's a white person with a sword or armor. Uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, he has a distinctive style and he's a very talented artist and I like looking at his artwork, but I have to agree. I mean, you look at the cover of a revised tradition book and it's like, that's nice art, but it doesn't say Order of Hermes to me or it doesn't say Verbena to me, but it's really cool art. It's a slightly sad techno-future Puritan in almost yes. every case. They're almost always not looking at you. They're completely <laughs> covered in clothing of some sort. They're a little bit sad, and everything behind them is kind of dark. And then you're like, oh, I totally get why Christopher Shy was brought in to do some of the art for Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> like, it all kind of falls into place. Even though in Chapter 2, the uh, traditions and, and hollow ones are very well represented to us, there are references to the technocracy and the conventions of the technocracy. But I don't recall for the this book any point where they say 
now we're going to introduce the technocracy and tell you what the conventions are in the technocracy. That that just isn't done. I can imagine that people who were already Mage fans and were already buying Mage books, a couple of books before there was Guide to the Technocracy, and it was, you know, everything technocracy, we're going to get into the weeds here, we're going to tell you how to do a player character. And so these Mage fans would be all, you know, excited, it's like, hey, the technocracy, it's not just for NPCs anymore. And then they pick up Mage Revise, and it's like, well, what if I want to make a Iteration X member? It's like, well, you, you can do it in Revise, but not in this book. I finally understand the term wonder. Because as a mage fan, I was saying, well, why did they change the name, the game term from Talisman to Wonder in Revised Edition? Doesn't that cause some confusion? It's like, I didn't understand that they were actually trying to avoid confusion when they did this. Because they used the game term Talisman for what is basically a magic item, a pretty generic term there. They said that a device with a capital D is a techno-magical talisman. But actually, the word talisman, you know, comes out of, you know, a, a mystic background. And so in revised edition, they said, look, um, if we say talisman, that is a mystic magic item. And if we say device, that is a, uh, a technological magical item. And when we say wonder, we're just saying magic item. We're not saying if it's mystical. We're not saying if it's technological. We're just saying it's a magic item. Yeah, Revised does a pretty good job of being like, hey, we're going to expand this pretty thoroughly. And it's one of those cases where like we have devices and wonders and periaps and matrices and principier, whatever the heck the term is for something, a primer and so on. So the, the explosion of terminology, which I generally find useful, is first presented here. Some of the other definitions, though, are I, I found to be a little bit, I don't want to quite say circular, but it's like, the Tellurian, the whole of reality. The tapestry, a metaphor for the Tellurian. I'm like, okay. They switch fonts. That is, that is notable. And I only later realized that the font that they use is also the same font, or at least very similar to what was used in Planescape, which at the time of this was the game I had most recently played. So to me, this was just the font that RPGs used. So I'm like, <laughs> oh, this is the RPG font. Everything makes sense. The change in borders and backgrounds was kind of interesting to me because I remember making photocopies of these things, like scanning them on my home scanner and then printing out multiple copies for my playgroup. And I really liked the change in border because it didn't chew up quite as much ink, which I appreciated as a uh, kid where printer ink was expensive. I noticed how in first edition of Mage, the page borders really emphasized um, high tech or uh, I think they were trying to get across the point of this is a game about magic in the modern day. So magic is different now. And then when we got to second edition, they had that page border that kind of emphasized, um, you know, loose and loopy, which a lot of people thought must be mystical. And then at the bottom corner, it was uh, very tight and patterned. And so it's like, oh, this this must mean, you know, techno-magical kind of a thing. And so it emphasized, it's like, there is mystic magic and there is techno-magic. And here with page borders on revised, once again, we get that oh, towards the top, it looks kind of mystical. And then at the bottom, it looks kind of technological. And so I thought that was good. It shows a repeating pattern of the sphere symbols, and as you go towards the bottom of the page, it starts kind of falling apart, which you can either view as being digitized or being overwhelmed by entropy. They also removed the tendency to have 
side notes come in at weird angles. Like in second edition, if you look at some of the pages that are just a whole bunch of tables, it looks like a whole bunch of sticky notes had just kind of been dropped onto a page, which in some cases is like kind of visually engaging. But when you're trying to quickly find something, you're like, where is it? And you're like, oh, it's in this odd sticky note that's cocked off to the side by 30 degrees. The burnt edge effect that they had in a lot of places was a bit too digital for me. But I mean, eh. It's a product of its time. It's like when we look at the cover of Orphan Survival Guide and everyone has tribal tattoos. You're like, what did you expect? It was 2000-ish. So, yeah, I really can't. <laughs> you need to be yeah. cool like me and just do a podcast to get this out of your system. Get it out of your system. So, yeah. Well, um, moving on to the next section, uh, setting changes. Let's get into it. Uh, a lot of people have said that in revised edition, there was a more careful focus on mages who are less powerful, who are on Earth, and that this will be more relatable to new mage fans. It will, it may be more enjoyable for younger mage fans. This was probably one of the decisions that White Wolf corporate leadership uh, decided. They said, look, they also wanted to say, look, we want less Umbra, more planet Earth. There was a quote on page 19 from Bill Bridges of the book called Ascension, which came very close to the end of Revised Edition in 2004. Uh, quote, Jess Hainig, who gave the game a new spin and a revised edition, toning down some of the frankly over-the-top directions the game had occasionally wandered into, end quote. I've talked with a number of Mage fans over the years that said, yeah, second, first and second edition were getting a little too wild and a little too out there, and it's nice that revised edition tightened the focus, got things back to, to regular people on a regular Earth, and, and I'm really happy about that. And I've talked to other Mage fans who share my opinion, and it's like, well, I, I like the way out stuff. I like the weird stuff. I like you know, going way out in the umbra and finding totally strange things. And so that's the the side of this uh, disagreement that I, I fall on. Let's see, revised edition closed off the umbra with what they called the Avatar Storm, which was discussed and introduced at the tail end of uh, second edition. But here we, it's really a part of, uh, of the game. It's, it's in the core book and it's explained to us. Uh, now, the Avatar Storm was a supernatural occurrence that was the result of other things happening in the meta plot. But basically the point is there was some phenomenon in the Umbra that made it very, very difficult and dangerous to go from the uh, regular Earth to the Penumbra and back the other direction also. They said it's the Avatar Storm. There are actually shards of, of some supernatural substance that is being blown by this umbral wind at very high speeds, and it will physically damage you if you go from the Penumbra to the Earth or, or the other direction. And so because of this Avatar Storm, the horizon realms of all of the mage factions were closed off. Now, in the past, mage books had said that uh, there's something, a game term, portal. It's like basically a magic door that takes you directly from the Horizon Realm to Earth, and you don't spend time in the Umbra, so to speak. But the uh, Avatar Storm affected the portals also. So no matter how it is you get from Horizon Realm to Earth, now that is uh, difficult, it is dangerous. Some of the portals just collapsed and just were not working at all anymore. So uh, mages who were living in Horizon Realms were isolated. Um, some of them were not able to get to Earth at all. Some of them decided it's not worth the risk. I'm just going to stay here. And so there was much less communication between the older masters who are in Horizon Realms and the younger mages who are at higher risk places on, on Earth. So basically, the powerful older uh, NPC mages are um, taken out of the picture 
And as a result of that, the uh, player characters who are supposed to be younger mages with uh, you know less powerful, they haven't spent all their experience points yet, they are, as a result, more important. They are t- even taking leadership roles and deciding the futures for their factions. And one of the, the key things that happens there is the Horizon Realms are cut off. No one wants to go there. Uh, the, the exact mechanic of that is you roll your Arite plus your permanent paradox. In this book, it says paradox. In later edition, in later books, it says permanent paradox against difficulty six. And for each success, you take a aggravated wound, which for a mage is not insubstantial. So the Horizon Realms are cut off from access, but also it suggests that there's this weird cosmic shift that occurs. The things don't quite line up correctly, the Nefandi lose access to their Nefandic lords. And this also, in some cases, is indicated as disrupting quintessence flows. So some of the realms disappear, possibly with the masters inside of them. And in other cases, if a realm starts to dissolve and the master leaves, they now have, what, 30, 60, 90 days to come back before disembodiment just turns them into a spirit. So this is one of those cases where it's not just that your friends are in like a different house that you can't get into and one day you'll be able to get into it again. There is a clock ticking once the Avatar Storm starts that basically says, unless these masters get back to Earth in a critical period of time, we're never going to see them again. Yeah, so setting-wise, it, it, this is quite a change for the, the world of Mage the Ascension. I think it's nice that they wanted to communicate to Mage fans that, hey, your player character is important and can make a difference and can even take on a leadership role. I, I, I think that's cool, and I don't have a problem with that. But uh, when I talk with Mage fans, I see that they had kind of a different understanding in 1st and 2nd edition than I did, which I didn't really understand until Revised hit, and we started talking about these things openly. Um, in my own chronicles, I always had this idea that because uh, Awakened Society, basically Mage Society, was so small that even newbies in it were more important because of that. Even if you were just a starting out mage, you were still noticed. Also, I had a kind of unofficial, um, I called it an action economy for my portrayal of the world of mage. And I said that older and more powerful mages were more risk averse. They were more interested in their own research, even if they weren't uh, you know, risk averse. They, they cared about their own research. And so they would set up shop either in a sanctum on earth or in a horizon realm. And they wanted to get into their studies and get into their research. And they didn't want to be really active. And so they liked the idea that new mages were coming into their factions because they could have them be the errand boys and errand girls. It's like, look, I want you to send a message over here. I want you to investigate this thing. I want you to get this for me or deliver this for me. And so the, the more powerful mages would were happy with the fact that the younger mages were moving all around, discovering things, doing things, traveling the Umbra, reporting uh, discoveries, and that there was this kind of trust between the older mages and the younger mages because it was necessary. Mage, you know, Awakened society was very small, and if they didn't trust each other and get things done, they were going to be in trouble. But a lot of other mage fans I talked to did not have that understanding, and so Revised was a breath of fresh air for them. Mage Revised has its rules set so that it is, generally speaking, uh, mages are less powerful, not dramatically less powerful, but they are less powerful. Magic is, generally speaking, more difficult. And they prepared us for this at the tail end of second edition. They said, look, magic is getting harder. It is getting harder to get around the Umbra. Even the technocrats who are supposed to be you know, pushing the dominant paradigm and have the most influence, even they are noticing that their techno magic 
is more difficult. Revised edition is more relatable. It concerns itself more with Earth and things that regular people know more about. So for new Mage fans coming in, it was a lot more relatable, which uh, is not my preference. But you know, I have to be honest, when you make a game more relatable for a large amount of people and you bring a lot more people into the Mage fandom, that's got to be a good thing. Now, on page 24 of this book, there's a quote that kind of sums it up nicely. It says, where mages once fought across the cosmos over ephemeral ideas, now they fight on Earth for human causes. And so when I read that, it's like, yeah, this sums up very well what you're what you're trying to do. Also, I noticed a heightened sense of desperation and drama. Funny thing that I thought was this is surprisingly closer to early first edition feel. That was when you take the first edition core book and you actually read through the prologue fiction and, and some sections and the back cover and stuff. There's this idea that uh, things are really desperate. We're really in a lot of trouble. If we aren't really, really careful, we could all be dead tomorrow and, and that sort of thing, that heavy-duty tension. And, of course, as later first edition and second edition, they, they lightened up a little. And here, here in revised edition, it's like... The mages on Earth are in trouble, they're hiding, um, they don't know if, if the technocracy is going to come for them or something worse will happen. And also, um, Metaplot was more present and more important in Revised Edition than it was in the two previous editions, which um, is, is not as much my preference, but I've talked to a lot of mage fans and they really appreciated that. They really liked the fact that the authors uh, of the Mage Revised Edition books were giving them more Metaplot, more... Um, important events going on in the world of Mage presently, that, like names of important figures and goals and, and problems that they're having. And so these are things that a storyteller can weave into their stories if they like or ignore if they like. It is like, to me, 5 or 10% of what happened in Vampire in terms of that meta plot. Like, it's one of those things where, so going from mid-second edition to late-second edition slash revise, there are huge meta plot changes. You have the Week of Nightmares, you have the Avatar Storm, you have the Loss of Concordia, you have the, the Great Whiteout, and so on. But, like, after that's done, we get, like, one more big meta plot thing in the form of the Rogue Council, and that's pretty well it until Ascension with one or two small things in there. So it's kind of interesting to me when, when people are like, oh, man, revise had so much more meta plot, but I'm like, yeah, but it's going up from a really small base. It, to me, a lot of the mage meta plot is relatively easy to take it or leave it. Where when you get these dense meta plots where you're like, oh no, blah blah is now the prince of this city who did this thing that caused this thing to explode over here. That to me gets kind of hard to untangle. I always found the meta plot changes in mages relatively easy to ignore. That that was my experience. Yeah, I followed the vampire line from the tail end of first edition through second edition. And once it got to vampire revised, I was buying the books, but I was not reading them. And so I, yeah, I just don't have an understanding of how things went through that edition of vampire. Uh, very popular, though. A lot of people loved it. And one of the weird things that's kind of interesting to me, you mentioned that the focus on there's a desperation. In first edition, it was desperation born of like the technocracy being everywhere and kind of winning. And one of the problems, though, that is presented in this book by not giving us any new information on the technocracy is they say the technocracy won, or at least that's suggested in a bunch of places, depending on how like rigid you want to be. But to me, the technocracy has been decapitated too. They've lost access to control. They mention the Nefondi no longer have access to their Nefondic lords. And they even say that marauders have become rarer. So 
I, I think the, the best summary is one that ultimately comes out in M20, which says the Ascension War is over and nobody won. Because it mm-hmm. talks in a lot of places like the technocrats are even dealing with more stifling paradox. The technocracy is now facing the level of difficulty seemingly that mystical mages had for the last few centuries in that things are harder for them. Cloning isn't working. Vaccines are losing effectiveness. Sleepers just don't care. They've almost been too successful. So it, it's one of those weird things where to me in a holistic picture, everyone kind of took a kick to the groin as it were. And, yeah. and you kind of have to have a differential focus if you want to pick one or the other, over the other. Yeah, and that actually leads up well to my next point, and that was a couple of points, uh, a couple of parts in the book uh, state this idea that apathy has set in with the the sleepers, you know, the, the general population, the regular human beings who are not mages or, or, or aware of what's going on in the quote-unquote world of darkness. This apathy born from, I guess, the, the desperation of, of living difficult lives has set in with the population, and, and for that reason, magic in general, including the technocrats, abilities are more difficult. I don't know if that's the White Wolf author's commentary on uh, life in America in the year 2000, or if it was just purely something for World of Darkness. But that was an idea that was kind of new, I think, for Mage the Ascension. In the previous two editions, there was really no summation of what the sleepers were like or what was going on in regular society. It's just like you know, look, you know, you know what's going on in the real world and how much of that you want to bring into your game, you know, do that. But revised editions like, no, that there has been a change in the general population. Apathy has set in, that has had an effect on magic, it's had an effect on on so many different things. And it says a number of times in the book, the Ascension War is over. But as a major fan reading this book, I kind of got the sense that like it's over, but it's kind of not over <laughs> because the technocracy is still going after the traditions and whether it's more or less is up to the storyteller, but that is it. The book says that is still occurring. There are still factions of mages that care about affecting the general population's attitudes. There are still factions of mages who are scuffling with each other for influence over mage society. And so to further your point, page 256 has a section entitled technocratic victory. And then the next section is or defeat question mark. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so yeah this is an excellent opportunity for the technocracy to seize nodes and if they seize nodes then they would have a big boost in what i guess used to be the ascension war but i can understand why the technocracy has not refocused and started doing that and that is because the avatar storm affected the technocracy too their, their leadership, uh, their lines of communication from quote-unquote bosses is now cut, and the technocracy is, is very organized. The rank and file on Earth is accustomed to getting its orders from the bosses, and when there are no more orders at all, no communication, then it's going to take time for them to adjust and reorganize and you basically pick new bosses. And so it makes sense to me that the technocracy does not swoop in on this great opportunity, gobble up nodes, and then start, uh, you know, dissolving all of the horizon realms that were connected to those nodes. But um, I, if I was running a chronicle in this setting, I, I might play with that idea. Another thing that was very interesting to me personally was in the past, I have had a, a discussion with a couple of mage fans who said, you know, I don't like the fact that Mage the Ascension is about magic versus technology. I, I don't like drawing those lines. And I was thinking, well, that, that's not the understanding that I got. I, I, I did not see that in Mage. 
And on page 23, there's this quote that, that I want to read because it was so interesting to me. It says, quote, over the past few centuries, the Ascension War has raged between magic and science as the adherents of scientific thought spread their ways throughout the world, end quote. And it's like, oh, okay. and that's in a core book. A core book is is referenced and reread more often than supplemental mage books. And so to have this in a revised edition, I mean, yeah, if some, if a mage fan came to me now and said, uh, mage is about uh, magic versus science, I'd say, yeah, you got a point. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Their revised edition core book does say that. Yeah. It, it, to me, though, there is a strong flavor difference in that in revised, it is not presented that technology destroys the human spirit as it was in first edition. To me, the contrast is science is fundamentally predicated on a set of repeatable patterns that apply in all places at all times that can be used by anyone, whereas the mystic traditions in this case are set up as these are tools that are wielded by some and very widely between participants. So like one of the things I thought about this book is it brings greater metaphysical focus to me to the mage setting where it very much says the traditions are interested in allowing humanity the freedom to choose their paradigm whereas the technocracy is saying no this is the paradigm and we should just kind of run with it. To me that is how in revised I am interpreting that science versus magic thing not that science is necessarily bad, but that science is a stand-in for we're all going to pick one paradigm and run with it versus the the magical we are going to let a, a thousand flowers bloom or something like that. Although I think if the mystics were ever to emerge, there would immediately be infighting among those groups to figure out which mystical paradigm would then kind of rise to the top. But that that is how I interpreted that discussion of magic versus science in revised versus in first edition where it was science bad, magic good. This was more of a let's all agree on something versus no, let everyone do what they want to. Yeah, for the first two editions, magic versus sciences, I, I had a harder time seeing that. Terry and I were chatting a, a few weeks back and talking about how in revised with the Avatar Storm and the uh, the leadership cut off from the less powerful mages on Earth, it makes sense that the factions would reshuffle that like instead of the council of nine mystic traditions they would have they would get more traditions or less traditions or some traditions would like get a lot of members uh, very quickly and other traditions would would simply go away they would fade away and no longer be and, and same thing for conventions even it's like what would they all consolidate in one convention or i mean it, it seems reasonable that over time these things would happen and, and terry made the very astute observation that the revised edition core book was trying to say this just happened like this happened last week or last month or something. The mage factions are still the same as they were in, in you know before, and people are trying to put the pieces together. And I said, yeah, that that totally makes sense. But then through the course, you know, the entire course of revised edition, it seems kind of reasonable to me that there would be a reshuffling of factions, but they stay very much the same. And I I, I guess that's kind of momentum. It's like. Fans have their favorite faction, and mm -hmm. if that faction goes away, they're not happy. And so I, I think that kind of momentum kept everything together. But of course, when we run our own chronicles, if we want to go with a meta plot from Revised, we're, we're free to say, yeah, this tradition becomes important. These two merge, and this one goes away completely. Yeah, the big thing that happens there is uh, the, the big reshuffle to me is the loss of a lot of the crafts. They indicate that a lot of the crafts have folded into the traditions, that the technocracy uses this period of confusion to decimate a lot of those individual practitioners, which on the one hand destroyed a bunch of crafts, but on the other hand brings a lot of them into what could theoretically be more approachable through the tradition lens. And if you view traditions as more political and less directly tied to culture, 
culture, which is one of the takeaways I have from Revised, that kind of brings some of these crafts to the front for people who were otherwise uncomfortable playing a craft mage because they did want to have a character that was engaged in the Ascension War or taking the fight to the technocracy. The thing that I find fascinating is if we take the time from the Avatar Storm to Ascension, that is, I think, at most 12 years if you stick with the meta plot. And in that period of time, no changes occur in terms of uh, factions. We get the the rise of the Rogue Council. We get the advent of Panopticon within the technocracy. Threat Null, if you really want to include that, but that's not a reshuffling. Whereas in Vampire, it's like, oh, the Gangrel are gone. And you're like, really? These these things act slowly over centuries. And we have like this big reshuffle uh, before Gehenna, which I found <laughs> to be an interesting contrast. And part of that reason may be that there would be more reshuffling, except for you can view the decapitation of them as this will make it more likely that something will change or this will Will make it less likely that something will change. There's no centralized leadership or a power structure or anything like that, so it's really hard to make decisions. Alternatively, the numbers have been decimated, so now the Euthanatoi are like eight people in like a loft apartment, so it makes it way easier for them to shift. So I, I see good arguments going in both directions. Actually, Terry mentioned the next one I was going to make, and that was in a revised edition, the crafts that we got in Book of Crafts, most of them were rolled into traditions. I'm going to say this has been a, a controversial decision. I, I've talked to a lot of mage fans who didn't think that was such a great idea. I've talked to a number of, of mage fans who love revised or who love second edition, and they say, yeah, the Templars joining the Celestial Chorus, I, I have trouble seeing that. Mm-hmm. Or uh, the Wulung joining the Akashic Brotherhood, I, I, I just have a hard time making that connection. And I can agree with that. I mean, uh, yeah, in hard times, you need to find new allies and you need to cooperate more. But but to say that the Wulung are just going to join the Akashic Brotherhood and say, we're Akashic Brothers now, that's a big leap. Yeah, which is interesting because at the same time, we get the the Dead Magic series, which explodes the number of paradigms we have access to, where it's like, ah, yes, the crafts are gone. But also, here are 16 groups you didn't know existed that were out there. Although, in that case, they are presented as paradigms as opposed to organizations. So, and to Mm -hmm. me, that again leans into the idea that traditions and so on are more political than anything else. So, once you remove the paradigm element, then it makes sense that that you could have more strange bedfellows, as it were. But yeah, I read the thing about, like, hey, guess what? Wulung, Akashic Brotherhood, they're the odd couple. Like... (laughs) he's a bureaucratic wizard who worships his ancestor he's a peasant farmer who can kick through a two by four how will they make risotto together and you're like (laughs) you're like that's I mean, again, it's like the Knights Templar are like, this is our theology. We're very strict about this, and we're proud of the fact that we have held to this for so many years. And Celestial Chorus, it's like, no, we are, we are very open-minded, and we're very proud of being very open-minded. And, and these two guys are going to work together? Yeah. It's like, that. I can see difficulties. This next change is the spelling of the word magic. In revised edition, they dropped the K on the end. A lot of mage fans I love to talk about that because, you know, look, it's a spelling change. It's the same idea. It's pronounced the same way. In the first two editions of mage, magic with a K on the end meant sphere magic only and not vampire blood magic, not hedge wizard paths, not anything else. And so... I, as a person who bought and read the books, I really liked it because it was kind of like, I called it the author's shorthand. 
And I just really liked it. Now they're saying magic will always be spelled with no K on the end. And so the shorthand is gone. And so it's like when you see the word magic, it's like, well, are we talking about vampiric blood magic? Are we talking about uh, sphere magic? Or are we talking about the concept of all magic? I mean, there's no shorthand to, to help me here. I like that kind of stuff. For example, when a game term, most game terms are also dictionary words. But when they are a game term in earlier editions of Mage, they would capitalize the first letter. And it's that shorthand. I just loved it. It's like, oh, you're not talking about the dictionary word. You're talking about the game term. I get it, you know, very quickly. And I can just read the sentence without scratching my head at all. And I think in revised edition, uh, there was less of that game term capitalization. So the shorthand was gone, which I personally didn't like. But I'm not going to, you know, make a complaint about it. It's not, it shouldn't be that big a deal. But it was handy. I always thought the K was super pretentious. <laughs> so when they dropped it, because I had first ex- I had first seen the magic with a K in the context of either Wicca, which when I was in high school, the three people that are like, oh, we're practitioners of Wicca. I'm like, oh, assholes. Or uh, later <laughs> from like the Crowleyan definition, which makes me also go, oh, assholes. So I had cultural baggage associated with it. And it does do this interesting thing where in Revised, we set up a world where sorcerers are much more common, where if a mage wants to engage in a magical community, chances are there will be non-awakened members. And they try and present the idea that within the game, uh, the difference between a sorcerer and a true mage is not as clear as the mechanics would indicate. It also kind of suggests that within the cosmology of World of Darkness, it is a difference in degree, not a difference in kind between what vampires do and what mages do, or between what the Garu do and what mages do, which is one way of looking at it if your goal is to create a seemingly more unified world of darkness. Now, a weird thing comes out the other end where they're like, oh, by the way, you can process a fairy corpse to get quintessence. And you're like, "Uh, okay, that's that's a direction I didn't think Mage was going to go when it talks about how the bodies of Nightfolk are made out of Tass. That's part of a redefinition of the term Tass, though. The spelling change to me reflected a change kind of in the metaphysics and attempting to come up with something that was a little more unified across the books, but I imagine Mage is the only book in Revise that really cared about that. Yeah, I, that was actually the next thing I was going to discuss was the the hedge wizards and the sphere mages were kind of put together and said, look, they're they're all mages and they all do magic. And on a certain level, I can I can understand that, but on another level, it's harder for me. And this might be my cultural baggage. I, I started in '93 with the first edition core book when it was new and on the on the game store shelf. And so I, I really you know, drank in this whole notion of uh, sphere mages being separate and different from uh, hedge wizards. And they, they, they see each other as being different and they have hundreds of years of tradition of watching each other do their magical effects and, and telling the difference between path magic and sphere magic. And so when I read this, for me personally, it, it was jarring to say, hey, we're all mages together and it doesn't make a difference. It's like, well, I can see how sphere mages would look at path magic and say, no, that's different. You guys don't have an avatar that talks to you. We have an avatar that talks to you. That makes us different. And so, but, you know, I I have to stop myself and and say, well, look, you you started in 1993 and and drank in the whole first edition thing. And so there's probably a lot of other people that say, oh, doesn't it make sense to put them all together? 
And part of that is supported by the idea that in Revised, if magic is harder, then you're much more likely to do large group rituals where it may be less obvious. They're like, yeah, uh, Sally leads the ritual, but we're all here to make the magic happen. So in that kind of thing, if you have sorceress apprentices that are helping with it, then then it's just kind of like, yeah, well, Bill's in charge. Sure, but we're all helping. How is what we're doing different? One day I'll be able to do what Bill does. That does make sense. And I, I guess I didn't factor that in appropriately. Because magic is harder, there's going to be more large rituals and they're going to want helpers who are either sleepers or, or path yep. wizards. Um, th that's fine. And I remember reading the first World of Darkness Sorcerer. It, it made it clear that hedge wizards form societies that are separate and different mm -hmm. from the you know, sphere mage factions. And so I, I got used to thinking that way. And now it seems like there would be less of the hedge wizard factions and less Im importance on them. And uh, the other thing they kind of lay down is, and I guess this is supported by the loss of the masters, where they make mention to the fact that discussions of avatars and true awakening is not really what people are talking about as much anymore, that there are certain experts that care about that stuff, but they are seemingly all gone now. So that is another reason that this difference is kind of obviated that, yeah, the masters could easily tell the difference, but now that they are all gone and we have, uh, we've left the middle manager in charge or the, or the shift manager is now in charge. He doesn't know that there's a difference. Um, so it could be a case of like just kind of ignorance perpetuating itself. There is a one-time reference in this book to how the term, Technomancer has been redefined. And in the past, a Technomancer was a technology-oriented mage. So um, an Iteration X member was a Technomancer, but a member of the Hermetic Order House Fig, which kind of mixed laptops and mystical magic together, he was also a Technomancer. In Revised Edition, they say, look, the Technomancer is the House Fig mage who kind of mixes technology and his magic, in mystical notions with technological apparatus. And the technocrat is not a technomancer because his whole worldview is centered around science and technology. And so that was just mentioned once in the whole book. And I don't know if that's something that they really emphasize a lot throughout Revised Edition or not. But that, that would trip me up as a storyteller. I, I would get tripped up over that one. It struck me as they were trying to put more distance between what the Virtual Adepts and the Sons of Ether were doing and what the technocracy was doing. But then as you go through the rest of the book, they give no examples of how they are really that different. So it's, okay, yeah. these two things are not the same. Okay, can you give me an example of how they differ? No. And we're not going to okay. mention it anymore either. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Great. Okay, noted. The last thing for me was when I read through the, uh, the three or four page uh, explanation of the Order of Hermes in chapter two, when all of the you know, traditions and, and hollow ones were introduced in full, I noted that a lot of the newer notions of what the Order of Hermes was like uh, that uh, Broccato introduced were, were really set down firmly in the uh, Order of Hermes write-up. And uh, this is, it matters to me because I was storytelling Order of Hermes player characters, you know, back in the beginning in 1993. And so I saw this new approach to the Order of Hermes come in when Bricado took over and it was emphasized more strongly in second edition. And now it is written into canon in a core book. And so I guess I'm, I've just accepted the fact that I'm always going to see the order of hermes differently than a lot of mage fans do because 
I started in 93 instead of starting in 2000. And so, you know, seeing it here written into the core book, it's like, yeah, this this helps me understand why there is this disconnect when I talk to a lot of other mage fans. I mean, for example, I went to one online site and I said, well, what if I made an Order of Hermes character? I think that'd be fun for me to play. And the guy said, oh, yeah, you can do that. Um, all the NPCs and all the other player characters are going to treat you like dirt because Order of Hermes mages are jerks. And I said, well, not necessarily. And the guy said, no, no, necessarily. It's like, oh, okay, that, that's how that's going to be. But uh, that wraps up my thoughts on setting. The thing that came across to me was setting-wise, and maybe this is a theme or a mood thing, but the game no longer feels like a satire. It doesn't have that sense of humor to it. The technocrats are no longer that weird kind of over-the-top. Uh, the mystics are no longer... You, you don't seem to have as many uh, dream speaker next to Sons of Ether moments to them, at which point you no longer have that contrast with contemporary society. It now feels like a commentary and less of a satire. There doesn't seem to be as much humor baked into the game, partially due to that that mood shift. And I thought that was something that we lost in Revised. We also had that problem that it didn't feel like it, it, it stuck the landing, that the technocracy is won, but it's also been decapitated as we talked. Uh, but one of the things I thought was interesting was it did speak more directly about kind of a unified metaphysics. It talked about three sources of what determines what the consensus is. One is what sleepers think. One is historical inertia. If something's always been a certain way, then it's going to keep being that way in a certain extent. And the third one was the idea of cosmological constants, that there are certain things that you just, they are the way they are. And one of the reasons that the masters left Earth was they were tired of dealing with those three. They wanted to go to a place where they could set their own cosmological constant, which to me narratively helped explain why the oracles and the exemplars and so on are more out there. Well, if they're so powerful, can't they just overcome the consensus? And the answer is yes, but at the end of the day, they still have to deal with these other two things that are going to intrude on what they do anytime they're on the side of the gauntlet. And I thought that was a good explainer. And it also talked about the idea that magic being fundamentally internal or external. Am I just manipulating laws of reality that are out there, or is it in some true way coming from me? I thought Revised did a good job of bringing a lot of those metaphysical questions to the fore and giving kind of a unified framework on how to discuss them. I think eventually this comes to its apex in the Storyteller's Guide Companion handbook. I can never remember the, the hardcover one where it talks about open and closed paradigms and narrow and deep paradigms and so on. And to me, that was a conversation that Mage kind of needed from the beginning. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I did appreciate uh, how they kind of laid out and gave terms um, that people can discuss for the um, sleeper influence and the cosmological constants and the historical inertia. That that was nice because in the previous two editions, it seemed to discuss that reality is subjective and mages can bend reality. And I'm like, okay, I think I sort of get the idea, but how far do we want to go with this yeah, idea? Because exactly. you know, subjective reality gets messy quick. We've had discussions online uh, on our, our Discord about how, you know, if, if everything is, if, if reality is subjective, I mean, the more... The farther you walk into that territory, the weirder things get. Mm -hmm. But here in Revised Edition Core, they said, look, we've got these three principles 
that you can discuss and a storyteller can take these terms and say, look, how much do I want to emphasize this and emphasize that? And it, it does bring order to the whole chaotic concept. It's like, oh, okay, some things are influenced by dominant paradigm of the masses, the sleepers, and some things are always the same and they're always going to be the same. So as a storyteller, I can say, okay, this is the stuff I drop into the category cosmological constants doesn't matter what the sleepers believe. This is how it's going to be. You know, fire makes you hot, and that's just how it is. Yep. And then the other is, you know, historical inertia, et cetera. That is a nice framing device to help a storyteller approach their chronicle and say, okay, what is going on here? What changes with paradigm changes and what does not change? Because that really helps a storyteller get a handle on their chronicle. And this specific example they bring up in terms of cosmological constants is, no, mages can't reverse the curse of Cain that is baked into reality and mages don't get to undo that. So that's just one of those definitive, nope, you don't get to do that. You don't get to sphere your way out of this. And it's also kind of interesting because along with that, it reinterprets human history slightly. Normally I would have glossed over the history chapter, figuring out, ah, how much could I it have changed? But I found myself with an extra 45 minutes yesterday. So I decided to, to give a close reading of it. And it talked about how paradox strengthened at the end of the high mythic age, not because the order of reason had made advances, but because humans had come to loathe magic, that they were tired of dealing with the fallout of, of wars between wizards and humanity as a whole just said enough. It wasn't because of a mass brainwashing campaign that the order of reason was uh, caused paradox to become thicker. It was just a case that paradox became more problematic and the order of reason had the dominant paradigm. So they kind of slipped under the radar. Uh, they also talk about how the Nefandi were the cause of the Industrial Revolution, that the te technocracy was thoroughly ascendant and was driving things. And it was the Nefandi that made the technocracy advance technology in directions that caused it to crush human will and creativity. And that, to me, paints the historical technocracy as a much more good faction in a way that Mage really didn't get before, where historically it's been a conspiracy over seven centuries to, to dominate the world in various ways. That was kind of interesting in terms of what I felt was a, was a reinterpretation. Also, it goes into a little bit more detail that initially the technocracy supported the Axis powers during World War II, but it was a split decision, But and a number of the symposia disagreed with that. The virtual deaths were always on its side. So it, it also gave us a little bit more information about that period of history, which, which I thought was interesting. And the other metaphysical change was, to me, it also reinterpreted what the metaphysical trinity of dynamism, stasis, and entropy was. It says that entropy is the alpha and the omega. So instead of dynamism being the generating force to me, entropy is now the generating force. Dynamism is the ability to change and adapt, but entropy is the ability to create. And stasis is kind of what allows reality to exist. So you have the cycle of creation, and to me, it just kind of shifted things. And I, I, I don't have a strong feeling one way or the other, but this also supports a pet theory I have that the syndicate is fundamentally the dynamic faction within the technocracy because they are the group that any dynamically controlled system that is adaptive to outside influences is fundamentally being ruled by dynamism and not stasis, which is a very specific argument I get into online and revise supports me. Thus, I like it. I do remember reading the section where it said um, a lot of people don't understand dynamism. They think it's like this, but it's actually like this. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. But then Later in the same chapter, they give information that goes against that. And so it seems like they make an interesting point, but they don't support it very well. And so I, I kind of had a hard time with that section. 
Another thing was, or one way of looking at the traditions to me is, what must you transcend? Or what what does each tradition view you must transcend to ascend? And each gets a different answer to that. So the ecstatics believe you need to transcend the limitations of your senses. The hermetics believe you must transcend ignorance. The sons of ether believe you must transcend contradictions. Verbena, you must transcend the idea almost of civilization. And virtual adepts, you need to transcend the idea of substrate. So now, to me, we get this new, each one includes a philosophy section, and it kind of suggests that there is a core thing that the tradition thinks that you need to get beyond to access true ascension. And that, to me, partially is kind of the reframing. It is no longer necessarily a paradigm thing. It is now kind of a shared view of ascension thing. It is often tied with a paradigm, but the first one, the Akashic Brotherhood section specifically says, yeah, historically it's been East Asian, but by the way, we also have all these other members from all these other walks of life. And that, to me, walked into an interpretation and revised of uh, traditions being a little bit less tied to culture. Yeah. Well, when it comes to rules, um, I think Terry has uh, some some better notes than I do, but I noticed a number of things in the revised edition rules. Um, a lot of these things seem to me to be support for their setting changes, you know, baked into the rules, which, which makes sense. The first two editions of Mage used a rule system that White Wolf Game Studio came up with. And at back, back in the 90s, they called this rule system the storyteller system. And around 99, 2000, they came up with the storyteller revised system. And one of the reasons they came up with the re- storyteller revised rule system is they it took them a few years to catch on that um, more dice in a dice pool cause a higher chance of botch. And they didn't f- you know, it took them time to realize that, and I might have never realized that, so I, I'm certainly not upset about that. But uh, with the revised system, they wanted to fix this, and they pull in something that a lot of people call revised botch, which is before uh, ones cancel successes. So if you have more ones than you have successes, you are dealing with a botch, and with you know a lot of dice, that, that can happen. Uh, with revised uh, rule system in, in all the World of Darkness games, they said. If you have ones and you have no successes, now you're dealing with a botch. And so there were less botches with larger uh, dice pools. And um, also there were some other changes. They decided that they wanted to get more granular with um, uh, damage rules instead of just regular damage and aggravated damage, which is you know harder to heal, etc. Uh, they, now they said there's bashing damage, somebody hits you with a baseball bat. There's lethal damage, somebody stabs you with a knife. And there's aggravated damage, somebody hits you with a flamethrower. Uh, by the way, please don't do any of these things yeah. at home, all of you <laughs> listeners. It's not endorsement <laughs> by Mates of Podcast to use as a flamethrower at your gaming table. For me, a big change. I'm a, a kind of a rules light guy, and so it's like, I'm like thinking, okay, you've got your aggravated, you got your regular, I can run with this and, and work things out quickly in my head at the gaming table. And now it's like, now there's bashing, lethal, and uh, aggravated. And that takes more time for me as a storyteller to, to figure out. It's like, well, he used a magic spell. Is that bashing or lethal? It's like, um, let me think about that. Yeah. And, and it's kind of interesting because there is also the revised storyteller system as opposed to the revision of the storyteller system that was used for Aberrant Adventure and Exalted, which gets rid of ability categories, gives default pairings of abilities with attributes, and generally fixes the target number. So when we say revised storyteller system, there are two different definitions of that. So hooray! 
around 1999 and 2000, people were calling that other rule system Storyteller 2.0. That was the term I, I oh, was okay. hearing, uh, reading online from White Wolf employees and, and fans and stuff. But then in later years, I, I don't see that as much. So I guess that nomenclature fell out of favor. Yeah, in some cases, revised edition is referred to as second edition revised, which how could that possibly confuse anyone? Let's see. Revised edition uh, paradox is is more severe. It more severely and more quickly affects mages doing magic. Um, the rules for resonance are more complex. In the previous two editions, it said resonance is there, but we didn't get a rule set for it. And I skills are more expensive to buy with experience in revised edition. You can buy backgrounds with experience points uh, in revised. In the first two editions of Mage, backgrounds, you know, with a capital B, after character generation, the storyteller would give you background extra background dots or take them away based on what was happening in the story but you could not you know a player character could not increase them on their own of course some would say well that's subject to storyteller approval it's like well yeah but reading through all the world of darkness games any expenditure of experience everything is always subject to experience to story yeah so the magic rules were made more complicated which i kind of didn't like but then on the other hand i gotta admit being able to choose how to spend your successes for a magical effect is pretty darn cool you can say i'm going to put most of my successes into duration. So even though it's a weak spell, it lasts a long time. Or I'm going to say that this thing that normally lasts for a day or more, I'm going to make it last only about five minutes, but it's going to have a more um, you know, severe um, effect. And so it's like being able to spend your successes is pretty darn cool. Now, how you uh, drop your need for foci changes in, in revised. It's interesting in revised rule set, no mages drop the need for a focus until they get to Erite 6, at which point they drop the need for one focus. And then at Erite 7 and higher, they drop two foci until when they get to Erite 10, if your game goes that long, then they no longer need a focus for any sphere. And uh, in that sense, it's uh, the same as the previous two editions. When you get to, you know, Erite 10, you don't need any foci. But it takes a lot longer to get there. Library and Mentor no longer give experience point discounts when you are spending experience points to increase uh, spheres or Erite. And this was something that was strongly emphasized in first edition. It was less emphasized in second edition, and now it's just gone from revised. Also, library background does not pool the same way it did in second edition, which was in second edition, you have two player characters, and they both buy library at two. Well, they put their books together on the shelf, and they have an effective library of four. In revised edition, when two libraries are put together, you add one. So if if two mages both have library background of three, three and three does not make six, it makes four. That sums it up for rule changes for me. I interpreted the library change as being a second edition pooled background where characters can pool, for instance, the node background to have access to a larger node, but they each get a different amount of quintessence from it. Uh, to me, that library background was a, we have a shared Chantry library, whereas in Revised, it's Adam has a library and I have a library, and if I look in both for something, then there's going to be overlap, or at least th that's how I read that one. 
one of the things that changed is willpower recovery each day is now specifically listed as being optional. Uh, in second edition, you got a willpower point at the start of each day after you got a good night or day's rest. Uh, now that is specifically said optionally, we get information on resonance. In second edition, resonance is something the mages kind of have, but if you look through the uses of the word resonance in second edition core, it is mostly referring to things that non-mages have in the sense that a talisman has resonance or a node has resonance, where in revised, mages have resonance and there is a system behind that. So if you have appropriate dots to what you're trying to do, that can decrease difficulty, which is something that was never really uh, spelled out in second edition. Uh, fetishes fundamentally change where previously fetishes was just, oh yeah, this is a this is a device that is powered by a, a spirit. But here it says, if the quintessence in a fetish depletes, the spirit inside just goes away. It's like peace, which kind of makes it a depletable resource. We get fundamentally different rules on how paradox works, where we're doing something vulgar uh, with witnesses now gives you a point of paradox for each dot in the highest sphere, regardless of if, if you succeed or fail. If you succeed, it still gives you a uh, significant paradox equal to the highest sphere that is being used. Casting rules change slightly in that rote is now anything that has been previously established. There is no additional difficulty savings for a rote. And now fast casting is not doing magic quickly, but anything that is not a rote. That is partially offset by the introduction of personalized focuses, which are a specific subclass of your focus that you tend to do better at, which reduces the difficulty by one. So if you're using your, your personalized focus, you kind of get to the same part at the end of the day. It's also kind of suggested that most casting takes a turn in revised, unless something is explicitly something you prepare for in a, or an extended ritual. The nature of jaw changes, which is the known as morbidity in M20. And Jor now says studying the topic of death can cause the accumulation of jaw, where in previous editions, it was kind of only obsession and killing someone with magic where otherwise it wasn't needed. We get the introduction of uh, being able to do magic without a focus at slightly increased difficulty, being able to surpass your tools if necessary. Reflexive actions are kind of introduced and systematized. And to me, one of the ones that is interesting is that multiple actions in a single turn become much more complicated and possibly much more powerful. In second edition, if you wanted to do multiple things at once, uh, you would just take whatever the smallest dice pool was for the two actions and then split them however you want. In this, you can take as many actions as you want, and the first action takes a dice penalty equal to the total number of actions you're going to take in a turn, and each subsequent action takes a, a an additional one die penalty, which may not seem like a huge difference, but if you're a character with Dexterity 5 and Firearms 4, under the old system, you get nine dice to take three shots. Under the new dice, you get 15. Most importantly, for me, cocaine is completely nerfed. It now does bashing damage for each dose of cocaine that you do, although it still kind of acts as a very cheap time three effect. It gave the recommendation of pairing merits and flaws, which I thought was interesting. And in addition to that, we also get the idea that there are little intelligent avatar shards running around called sendings. And I thought that was kind of cool. That is Terry's run through of the rules changes. Uh, last section, I just wanted to briefly talk about the effect on fans that Revised Edition had. And whereas Second Edition was seen as um, a subtle refinement of First Edition in, in a lot of uh, senses, uh, Revised Edition was 
a, a big change, both to the rules and to the setting. And there were a number of Mage fans who said, uh, I, I don't like this, I'm sticking with my old one, and I'm happy there. And there were a number of fans who said, oh, Revised Edition, is this is what Mage, you know, this is what I always wanted Mage to be, and I'm, I'm really happy to move over to this. And then there were a lot of people who started with Revised, and they think, well, that's what Mage is. I mean, what else could it be? And, you know, in later years, they look at First Edition, and they go, oh, well, that's that's different. And then there are, you know, of course, there were the people who were running first and second edition and they had a feeling of, oh, I like Mage and this is what it's like. And they looked at Revised Edition and they said, well, this is different. Some people have said that it divided Mage fans. It's like, well, I don't think that's really true. I think Mage fans, you know, there's enough uh, similarities that Mage fans get together and they, they all recognize the game they like and they like spending time together. But there has been sort of a, a tendency for Mage fans to align with either you know, one or the other. And I think that was the reason that when Mage 20 came out, Mage 20 announced, this is the edition of Mage for all Mage fans. We I want to appeal to all Mage fans. I think that's what they were referring to, the people who are like, revise is how it ought to be, and other people know second is how it ought to be. I think what really helped me uh, during this transition was a letter from Wayne Peacock. And Wayne Peacock has some author credits on uh, Mage, uh, I believe it's second edition. He doesn't have a lot of author credits, but if you look at the second edition uh, Mage Storyteller's Guide. There are a lot of quotes taken from playtests at, at White Wolf Game Studios, and Wayne Peacock quotes are all over that thing. He was really involved with playtesting Mage, running it for other White Wolf employees and, and freelance writers and friends. And so he, he was, even though he doesn't have a lot of writer's credits, he, he was very involved with Mage the Ascension. And so he put out a letter at the time that Revised came out, uh, uh, just after Revised hit. And we're going to put a link to it in the show notes. And I'm, long story short, he basically said, hey, Revised is out, and it, it's a big change. There are a lot of things that are different about Revised. And uh, at the end of the letter, he said, so what's my summation? He said, well, if you're new to Mage, then pick this up. You're going to find a lot of great stuff here, and, and I recommend it. You're going to have a great time. If you have an ongoing Mage Chronicle from 2nd Edition, and you, you've got your players and you're running your game sessions, should you pick this book up? He said, actually, I don't recommend that. He said, things are going to be so different that it's going to throw your game into a tailspin. So just stay with second edition. So I, I think that kind of summed it up nicely. He didn't say, I love it, I hate it. He, he said, this is, this is really different, and here are some things about it that are worth considering. And because he was so involved... Um, at Ground Zero with, with Mage the Ascension. Uh, I just wanted to put in the show notes the link to that so that everybody can read that on their own time and, and see one author's perspective on, on the whole uh, shift. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about that letter, and thank you for passing on to me, I didn't even know it existed. And one of the things he that Wayne does that I think is legitimate is if you're going to change the setting so much in a core rulebook, you need to give us now more setting information. If you're going to say the previous... 40 books are wrong in certain basic ways, you really need to front load that information. A lot of the criticisms uh, seemingly that Wayne had were things like, okay, Dozatep is gone. Why? Okay, Concordia is gone. Why? Like, we don't really get those answers and how to roll forward from there isn't really presented. We don't get any information about the Red Star. He says that's probably an omen and so on. But if you're going to make these big changes, you need to give that information. And and Wayne's argument is there shouldn't be changes to the core setting in a core rulebook. And now that I'm thinking about it, my answer is, huh, maybe. I haven't quite come to a conclusion yet regarding that. I just always got used to in in World of Tarkus, like, oh, yeah, we got a new core rulebook. Of course the meta plot has changed or something like that. So, uh, yeah, that's in the show note. Adam, thank you for finding that. And click on the link and you, too, can read it. 
Okay, well, with that, I believe we're drawing to the conclusion of this episode. Were there any uh, final thoughts you wanted to share with our listeners? The final one to me is, even if you don't like the book, I think the change in tone and in style of writing was good. Uh, my quote for the episode is uh, one that's from late in the book. Four factions battle for the right to define this truth, and the stakes are high. One faction says truth is personal, the traditions. Another says that truth is universal, the technocracy. A third claims that there can be no truth, the Nefandi. And the fourth, if it could form an opinion, would claim that truth is mutable, the Marauders. And the book has a lot of that good, pithy, encapsulating writing that I found clarified a lot of things for Mage for me. And if nothing else, I appreciated that. Yeah, yeah. Chapter one was sort of the the rough introduction to mage concepts, and they, they did a good job. I mean, there were things I disagreed with, but being a mage fan, I just I just have to do that. I think mage fans would understand that that quote. But um, they did a good job of encapsulating things. It's like all these vague things we've referred to in the past. Let's put it all down in one place and mm-hmm. spell it out. Okay, well, I believe we've come to the end of this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. You can subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other sites. Uh, if you liked the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review of Mage the Podcast, it helps make us more visible in other people's searches, and we would certainly appreciate that. You can follow us on Twitter. At Mage the Podcast, our producer is very active there and has a lot of great stuff to share with us. We're also on the web at uh, magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there, uh, see the chronological order. There's great show notes that we've put together for you. I recommend it. This episode is thanks to executive producers Ira Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, John Magnuson, uh, Andrew Edelstein, Chris Sack, Christopher Phillips, Bryce Perry, Brendan Morrill, Andrew Katz, uh, Michael Parker, Anders, and Justin. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes, and we would certainly appreciate it. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link is in the show notes, and uh, we encourage you to take a look at that. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening, and until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Come back in two weeks for Mage the Ascension Storyteller's Companion that explains a lot of the stuff that we wish had been explained in this book. And with that, go change the world. Bye.